Hello, and welcome back to the In the Can podcast. I am Devin, and this week I'm joined by... Jenny. And Tom. Uh, James and or Chris uh, are gone this week. They'll be back probably next week, maybe the week after, whenever they... Sometime in the future. Eventually. Uh, That being said, how are you two doing today? I'm here, ready to podcast stuff. I'm doing awesome. (laughs) Cool. I am tired. Awesome, dude. Yeah. Are you James this week? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. We'll see. I'm going to jump right into the void of my own heart. Anyway. Um, So, um, I will tell you I haven't watched any movies in theaters this week. (gasps) I know. It's been two weeks since I've been in a theater. Oh, man. Uh, But Angry Birds 2, Good Boys... And Blinded by the Light. I'm not saying. Okay. No. But Angry Birds 2, Good Boys, and Blinded by the Light came out this week. Uh, I'll eventually catch one of them. But anyone managed to catch any of those? I watched Good Boys. The movie. The movie. And it's little kids swearing, which I think is always hilarious, no matter what. They did, unfortunately kind of give a lot of the bits away in the trailers, which is what I was afraid of, but they left a couple of pieces or, like, extended bits for the actual movie. I thought it was pretty good. I would recommend going to see it if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, It's definitely rated R. It is not a children's movie, so do not bring your children. Alright. Yeah, I did not see it at all. I'll eventually catch it. I'll probably buy it online. I'd like like to see it. Watch that one. Uh, Angry Birds 2. <laughs> nope. 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 I didn't see the first. Don't care to see the second. True that, brah. And then, I do want to see Blinded by the Light quite a bit. Yes! I've heard uh, very good things. That was the closing night movie at the film festival, and I already had a bunch of other movies to see, so didn't get to see it, so I really do want to see it. Other than Good Boys, what else have you seen, Jenny? I watched Let the Right One In. Alright. And we'll get to that in uh, Gen Ed. Cool. Tom. Oh, I talk, I saw it. The remake. The remake. Oh, okay. So, and The Thing? <laughs> yes, The Thing. I mean, no, no. It by Stephen King. Oh, so you did see it. Yeah, okay. I saw it. Cool. Not The Thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I saw It remake. Oh, so the one that came after, so it follows. Yes. Oh, okay. It always follows, but before Chapter 2 gets here. Ah, got it. So, Chapter 2 usually follows It. Oh, okay, cool. Well, what did you think of it? I really enjoyed it. Um, however, I enjoyed the characters better than I liked it. So, I mean, you know. Yeah, that's kind of the point. You want to root for the, the kids instead of Pennywise. Although, not going to lie, there was a couple of points where I was actually rooting for Pennywise. Such as? Um, with Henry. I really hated Henry. Henry. It's the bully, right? That is the bully, yes. Yeah. Henry Bowers or something like that? Yeah. And I kind of felt bad for his dad, even though his dad was a total jerk and kind of had what was coming to him. So it seemed like all the parents were pretty much jerks and got what was coming to him. Yeah, especially Beverly's dad. Yeah. Especially Beverly's dad. Uh, that's cool. One of the things about the book is that the parents are just as negligent and just as not there in the book. So many right. times they are there, they just make stuff worse. So, um. What really, like, had me going was the part where she, where Beverly 
clocks her father with the top of the or top mm-hmm. of the toilet tank. Mm-hmm. I love the sound effect they use. Yeah, that kind of like really mm-hmm. meaty whack. Yeah, <laughs> just sounded really well or really well designed. Yeah, amazing. it was great. I I very much enjoyed the movie. The special effects of them floating in midair was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And I really like the way that they made Pennywise the monster look. Yeah. Uh, so I like those better, a lot better than the original, which had a lot more practical going on. Yeah. I I really enjoyed Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise. Yeah, he and did a really good job. His, like, the, the eyes moving in different directions and some of his weird movements or you think it's... It's CG, but it's actually just him contorting or, like, keeping his head stationary while other parts move. Like, just really impressive uh, physical performance. For sure. And I don't know if they'll go into it more in part two or not, but I really would have liked to have known more about how Pennywise's little cart thing got to where it was. Little cart thing. Yeah, oh. his stage cart for his oh, traveling yep. show. I would imagine they would uh, go into that. I would have liked to have known how it ended cartoon. up in the sewers like it did. They touch on it in the book. I don't think they'll really bother touching it. I was curious about all of the other kids that are floating in that little tornado-like thing. Yeah. And if they're actually okay now, or if they were all dead, yeah, or if yeah, they found dead. the bodies. They're, no, they're, if they're they... dead. Like, they're dead. Yeah, they Georgie were, was up there. And, yeah. yeah. They were but, dead dead, and then they had gotten to Beverly before she before she could be killed by Pennywise. Right. Yeah. So then did the people of the town eventually, like, find all those kids? Or, okay. Uh, they, they will deal with that a bit in the second, because really? that's actually something that they delve into with forgetting about Derry. Mm. Because in the beginning of the second, a whole lot of them don't remember any of that happened. Gotcha. So they kind of go into the fact that Pennywise or the care, the creature known as Pennywise is able to control people's minds. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because they all, I, it was also interesting to hear what Beverly had to say after when she was trying to recall uh, being in the trance thing from the Pennywise. Yeah. yeah. Where she was able to see the future. Oh, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, the I'm really curious to see what the what the group does with the second. I like I love the casting so far. Like, I really like Bill Hader as an older Richie Tozier. Uh, I, I like um, James McAvoy as Bill Dunbrough and Jessica Chastain as Beverly. And mm-hmm. I'm really excited to see what they do with it. And we yeah. only have a month or two, not even. Yeah, so. until the next one comes out. I'm yeah. super excited. Like to September, see that. I believe. I believe so. So. Yeah, you see anything else, Tom? I was watching a bunch of TV, and I had rewatched a bunch of movies for today. All right, but that yeah. was about it. I uh, finished the. I watched the season finale of Handmaid's Tale. And now I don't know what to do with my life. Ryan Hunter. We've got a bunch of movies for you to watch. <laughs> yeah. I can throw so many movies at you. That you wouldn't have to bring up on the podcast, just watch them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see about that, boys. Uh, I was in, um, because I've been like writing all week, 
and I'm writing something based in horror, bad, like, slasher horror movies, I just jumped into randomly watching bad slasher horror films. So I watched the movie Hatchet from 2006 or so. Well, rating? It's a dumb slasher, but it was fun. Uh, had a pretty decent cast. Some really, really brutal gore. Uh, watched the movie in Intruders about the agoraphobe that has that, like, when they break into the house, she traps him in the basement. And it's just this really twisted little movie. It was fun. Nothing special. Uh, I finally got around to watching the original Jeepers Creepers for some reason. Wow. Uh, okay. The first half of the movie with Justin Long and the sister, mm-hmm. whose actress I don't remember the name of, they are great mm-hmm. for the first half of the movie. The movie is genuinely really good for the first hour. And then they introduce too many characters and they show too much of the monster and it just goes meh. Yeah. Uh, then I also watched the Korean film Memories of Murder, directed by Bong Joon-ho, who did host Snowpiercer in the movie Parasite that's coming out this year. So I thought I had seen it before, got about 10 minutes into it, goes, none of this looks familiar, and uh, just kept watching. It was my favorite of the week. Uh, just a really, really well done Korean Zodiac-like detective. Thriller. All right. Uh, and they're able to blend the kind of humor that Korean films have with the darkness of the same kind of genre. So, all right. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's Memories of Murder. Um, kind of reminded me of a movie called Yellow Sea for some reason. So, mm. but, but yeah, that's what I watched. Um, other than that, I rewatched a couple of things for List today. Uh, I watched a bunch of like Rewatch Cabin in the Woods, uh, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, you know, just all these kind of like slasher comedies just to have on in the background. I oh, love no. Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. I love Tucker and Dale. Yeah. That means sure. I can never say it for Jenna. Damn. I know. If we ever have to do horror comedy, I know what I'm saying. <laughs> it's not Tucker and Dale, but I've already mentioned it once today. Cabin uh, in the Woods. Oh, yeah. Uh, moving on. Before we jump into news, is there any other movies they watched or anything that you want to mention? I did watch the. I'm rewatching, rewatched the first season of Mindhunter and I'm watching the second season. It's really good so far. So, if you haven't seen Mindhunter, it's phenomenal. I did get through the first half of the first episode of Legion. What'd you think? Very time jumpy, and I'm very confused as to like. It stabilizes a little bit. I I only have through the first episode because I had to leave for work, but oh okay, yeah. So I'm kind of trying to figure out where it's actually at. All right, I thought you went. Nope, I'm done. No, 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 no. Okay, it's a really good series. It's just one that you have to be a little patient here and there. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I really enjoy the series. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, let's move into news. Uh, there's not a whole lot. This week for news, um, Peter Fonda died. So if you're a fan of Peter Fonda, you know, rest in peace. To Peter Fonda, not to you because you're a fan. That sounded weird. Anyway, uh, one thing I want to touch on is the cancellation of the movie The Hunt. Um, I'm going to read the synopsis really quick and see if you can find any reason why this movie was canceled. Okay. Twelve strangers wake up in a clearing. They don't know where they are or how they got there. They don't know... 
They don't know they've been chosen for a very specific purpose, the hunt. Is this Hunger Games? Uh, I think it's more uh, the most dangerous game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was canceled because of the possibility of hunting humans. That's why it was canceled? That's what I've heard. And it is done through, from everything I've heard, it's in, it was in post-production. It was, like, it has a pretty solid cast. Betty Gilpin from Glow, Emma Roberts, Hilary Swank, Ethan Supley, Justin Hartley, who played, like, the Green Arrow in Smallville. Like, there's a decent cast, and it was just canceled, kind of out of the blue. Wow. Yeah, it was just kind of this, the fact that a potentially, like, 10 to $20 million movie was just outright canceled. It's just, whoa, okay. I mean, maybe there's something going on in the background that we don't know about. I don't know. Yeah, but it's not very often that you hear about a movie that has a pretty decent cast. Yeah. And is in post-production like that, that just goes, no, we're not doing this now. I mean, they did have the, what was the movie? The Kevin Spacey movie, All the Money in the World. They did have that completely finished, and then that whole controversy about him came out, so they just redid all of his scenes, which was pretty extensive. So maybe instead yeah. of doing that, it's something along those lines, they're just saying, just not even going to release it. I, don't know. I figure the hunt probably isn't like, hey, we have Oscar potential for whoever replaces Spacey, but mm-hmm. and like, yeah, Christopher Plummer got nominations for it, but I don't know. The hunt's just kind of this weird, like, okay, yeah, just outright canceling a movie because it might offend somebody just feels odd. Yeah. So cop out or something. Yeah, I kind of wanted to mention that because I'm like reading the synopsis. I'm like, that actually sounds kind of cool. Like a yeah. Like a most dangerous game type type film. Yeah, considering that they had a TV show for how many seasons that did that? Yeah. Like, they're worried about it now? Yeah. Okay. But, but yeah, I wanted to mention that. Um, other than that, not a whole lot of news this week. It's fair. Yeah. It's a pretty quiet week. Now it's starting to rain. So there's that. And we're back. The rain has seemed to stop, so we're good. Woo. Awesome. Let's jump into our main topic for today. Uh, this week we've decided to focus on movies that are based or inspired or are direct copies of real events. Right. So things like any movie you watch where it has that little thing in the corner, a little disclaimer, based on a true story and those horror movies that you watch and then you want to, you know, crap your pants because it's quote-unquote, real. Something that happened. Yeah. But it can be something very, very loosely based or something that's very accurate. It just depends on the movie and doing your proper research. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, for sure. So. We also decided no documentaries. Obviously. Technically, those are sometimes based on true events. Mm Mm-hmm. So. So, I'm going to start it off this week with a 2004 movie called Kinsey, starring Liam Neeson. As Dr. Alfred Kinsey, he was a biology professor in the 30s and 40s. And if you're wondering why this name sounds kind of familiar, it's because he invented the Kinsey scale for sex. Yep. Go on. (laughs) So, 
he found that while he was teaching biology, he had some students that came to him, you know, secretly asking him, hey, you're an adult. I have questions about what is quote unquote normal. Is this normal? Is that normal? Yada, yada, yada. And he found that a lot of people didn't have a direct idea of what is normal and what is not. So he decided to launch an extensive research uh, journey <laughs> about what is and what is not normal, regular, irregular throughout America in the 40s, which was not the best time to be doing that, but he did it anyway. So he went around the country, interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of people on their entire sexual histories and found out different things between men and women, homosexual and heterosexual, bisexual, in between. Um, he in even interviewed a couple of pedophiles. He had this extensive research journey that he turned into a couple of books. And at first it started out as something interesting. Society was kind of weirded out by it, but it was okay. And then when he started getting more into the women side of history, people started to push back a little bit more, saying this is too weird, uh, we're not okay with this, you're exposing things that aren't okay in society right now, and he got funding shut down. He did found the Kinsey Institute in 1947, and like I said, he invented the Kinsey Scale, which measures homo and heterosexualities. Goes from one to six, well, technically zero to six. Zero being completely homosexual, I believe, and six being completely heterosexual, and everyone falls somewhere on that scale. It was a fantastic movie. Liam Neeson in a very different role to his normal action-y films. Playing a nerdy professor talking to people about sex. But it is definitely a good watch if you're interested in how our society was shaped in the 40s by Dr. Alfred Kinsey talking to people about sex. So, I handed it off to one of the boys. That was a very good movie. I enjoyed that movie. Yes. Yeah. I bought that movie, I, actually. I haven't seen Kinsey in years, but... It was an yeah. odd thing that was going on with him and his wife and their partner, or their study partner guy. That was a whole other bit to the film that was interesting. He actually had an issue that he went to his own doctor about that was corrected, and he learned about medical issues regarding men and women and how it may or may not help their sexual lives and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So, my movie that I'm going to bring up uh, came out in 2002. It's PG-13, runs 2 hours and 21 minutes. Directed by Steven Spielberg, written by uh, Jeff Nathanson, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, Christopher Walken, Martin Sheen, and Amy Adams, called Catch Me If You Can. It's the story of Frank William Abagnale Jr., who was famous for skipping across the country in his younger days, uh, much younger days, and then across the world, uh, mainly Europe, to defraud lots and lots of people out of money. Uh, Interesting. Yes. So the movie depicts him as doing a lot of things, uh, mainly kiting checks and dealing with check fraud. Uh, he did other forms of crime as well, so he did do some shoplifting and things like that. Uh, 
mainly what it came down to was it became a game for him. Mm. And he wanted to see how far he could take it. What period of time was this? Well, this was during the... 60s? 60s? Yeah. 60s, yeah. okay. Uh, 50s and 60s. Uh, his uh, parents met in Algiers, France, where his mother was from. His father was fighting during World War II, and they married when she was still a teenager. Then uh, uh, Frank was actually the third of four children. It's during the 60s. 60s, yeah. And the story actually talks a lot about this relationship between Tom Hanks' character, who is uh, not a real person. Carl Hanratty is the character's name. It's based off of a gentleman by the name of Joe Shea, uh, or Joe Shea, um, and he was the head of the FBI task force that was actually going after him. Not that they really went after him all that much. They didn't like chase him down like they did in the movie. He was also never on the America's Most Wanted list, because that's meant for violent offenders, Right. and he was not one of those. He also never called... <laughs> The FBI was like, hi, it's me, Merry Christmas, never a real thing. Okay. Um, according to Frank, his uh, autobiography entitled Catch Me If You Can was actually only about 80% correct. Everything else was kind of embellished or names were changed, that kind of thing, to protect people's identities. Because at the time that he wrote it, for instance, Joe Shea was still actively working with the FBI, and he didn't want to give away that name because of the fact that it could have possibly hindered investigations and things like that. Mm. So in order to protect people's identities, that kind of thing, he kind of had to change some details around things and embellished on others. And he was only 18 at the time that he did the whole I want to be a doctor bit. Okay. So that was pretty interesting. Uh, he was telling that the the woman who he was starting to fall for, played by Amy Adams in this case, uh, he was telling her he was 23, or 23, yeah, I believe, and he was only 18. Or 28, rather. Something like that. He was only 18. Yeah, he was... Yeah, and then he went on. He actually did pass the Louisiana State Bar exam. All right. So that's a fun little tidbit for you. Uh, he only, And he did that by studying for two weeks. Then yeah. passed it. I mean, it's Louisiana, so I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, but it's the State Bar, so it's not like it's a normally easy exam to begin with. So, right. and yeah. It's always been a very interesting thing for me. He actually went on later on, after everything was said and done, to be a multi-billionaire because of all of the things that he put in place to stop major corporations from getting defrauded with their checks hmm. that they use for paying people. So, yeah. Yeah, I genuinely really liked uh, Catch Me If You Can. It's not my favorite uh, Spielberg film, but... It's my absolute favorite movie of all time. Uh, mine is going a little bit more, uh, indie film. Um, 
Mine is actually based on a story about a father and daughter who lived off the grid in an Oregon, uh, like a park, a state park. Mm-hmm. They, after the father had PTSD and couldn't deal with living in uh, society, he took his young daughter and the two of them moved into the park and lived off the grid for about 20 years. Wow. That's pretty uh, The movie's called Leave No Trace, starring uh, Ben Foster and Thomason McKenzie. Uh, Thomas McKenzie, this is her first film. Uh, she's also going to be in Last Night in Soho, uh, a great sex movie. So that's that's cool. Um, directed by a woman named Deborah Granick and came out in 2018. Uh, that's one of the film festival movies I saw. When was it set in? Uh, it is set, I believe, in the early 2000s. Okay, so one of the more recent ones. Yeah, it's, it's set pretty modern times. Okay. Um, the story of Will and the daughter Tom. Um, they, yeah, they want, he wanted to live off the grid because he was having panic attacks and all that because of having to keep up with friends and all this. It was like the um, social networking and all that. He just didn't want to have to deal with it and didn't want to have to deal with talking with people. So he just up and moved off grid. So he ended up living for years, hiding from the, the cops. And this tells the story of him and the daughter finally being found by cops, basically. Mm. And them forcing Tom, uh, the daughter, into uh, schooling and then being forced into a house. Mm. Where they now have to pay for the house and pay taxes on the house. Right. Where they didn't when they were living in the land. So now he has to get a job just to pay the stuff that he doesn't want to have to pay for. So where's the mom in the situation? Passed away? Disappeared? Uh, they don't. They established that she's gone. I believe she was dead. Uh, it's been a year since I watched the movie. Uh, but the mom is just out of the picture. I believe dead. Um, but yeah, the dad just can't handle, you know can't handle anything so he kind of just wants to live alone and wants his daughter to live alone but the daughter wants to meet new people wants to be friends and throughout the movie she ends up befriending a couple of people in town and helping out and the the dad just can't take it and really needs to get out and it's just this really interesting character study about this dad that's suffering from really realistic ptsd and the daughter who fully understands why and is there to help him but really wants to live her own life. How old does the daughter get when they uh, find her? 14, 15. Okay, like teenager. Okay. Yeah. Uh, like, middle to higher teenager. So. But, yeah, it was just this really brilliant little little film that's, a whole lot of it's just shot in the forest of the two of them. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved Ben Foster ever since, like, 310 to Yuma and a whole bunch of other movies, but... I loved him in The Messengers. Yeah. I, I mean, I've always loved Ben Foster and Thomas and McKenzie. Or Thomas and McKenzie. I'm really curious to see where her career goes because she was just absolutely brilliant. There's scenes where she's trying to decide: Do I stay with my father, which I've done this entire time, or do I make my own path? Do I go my own way? And you know, kind of that that problem brewing in her head throughout the movie is mm. a really interesting character arc. So, okay, but yeah. That's Leave No Trace. Uh, came out in 2018. Awesome. So. All right. Back to me. 
Yeah. So I'm going to go with a little bit of a dark one. Into the void. Not that dark. It is 127 Hours. Came out in 2010. Stars James Franco as Aaron Ralston. (sighs) Directed by Danny Boyle. And this is a story about back in 2003, Aaron was going on a solo hike. He didn't tell anyone where he was going. Big mistake, kids. He was on a solo hike in, I want to say Colorado. And he was in this gorge. Utah. Utah. He was in Utah. He was in this gorge. He ended up triggering this giant boulder. Um, and it came down and it trapped him. It crushed his left hand and it trapped his right arm in the trench between him and the boulder. And he was stuck there for, you guessed it, 127 hours. Alone. No cell phone. No one knew where he was. And he had little food, little water, trying to just figure out, well, now what do I do? He did have a pocket knife with him that he used to try and jimmy the giant boulder away from his arm. Nope. Didn't work. So he spent two or three days, I want to say, just chipping away at this boulder, trying to make a hole in it, trying to free his arm in any way possible. When he realizes... It's not going to work. And he had become so... He had run out of food. He started drinking his own urine on day four, I believe. Trying to stay alive. And he was hallucinating. He was just ready to die. He carved his name and his birth and a supposed death date into the boulder. And he realized he would have to cut through his own arm instead. To free himself. And keep in mind, he's been using this pocket knife to cut the rock the entire time. So it's not exactly sharp anymore. It is very dull. He didn't have a whole lot of feeling left in his arm. It was pretty much numb, I think, from like the elbow down. So he started cutting off his own arm. Tom is over here cringing very hard. (laughs) To me, the biggest... The biggest thing about this movie that stuck with me is the sound of when he hits the tendon. Yep. Because it has this like really high pitch thing, and he has he doesn't do it perfectly the first time. Yeah. So yeah, it's it is not an easy movie to watch. Yeah, James Franco did a fantastic oh, job yeah. portraying him in this movie, and after guess what, he did free himself. He had to rappel, I believe, sixty feet. And hike eight miles until he found a family that was camping and they got him to safety. He also said that if he would have cut off his arm initially, he would have bled to death. The only reason he didn't is because his arm had lost all feeling. It had gone black by the time he actually ended up cutting it off and getting out of there. And fun fact, the police and recovery team, you know, found him and everything. And they went and removed the boulder, found his arm, cremated it, and gave him the ashes. Alright. Yeah, so the lesson here is maybe don't go alone or at least tell someone where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, he's still alive. He is still alive. He's still hiking and going everywhere, and I'm pretty sure he's doing a lot safer now. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that is 127 hours. You can sit through it if you are okay with that kind of content. 
but it's a really good watch. If you say so. <laughs> it definitely doesn't shy away from showing stuff, too. Yeah, very, very So, in other words, stuff. I am never going to see it. Uh-huh. There's a reason why I haven't watched the Saw movies, either. It I'm is just more saying. graphic in that one scene than the guy cutting off his foot in Saw, because you don't actually see that. Regardless, not something that I want to sit through. All right. So anyway, John, why don't you take it away with a different movie? Yes. So the movie I'm going to be bringing up next is uh, came out in 2005. It's PG. Uh, it's two hours long, directed by Bill Paxton, one of the forgettable Bills. Uh, writer was Mark Frost, starring Shia LaBeouf, Stephen Delaney, and Elias Codius. Uh, it is the greatest game ever played. Oh, I uh, didn't know that was directed by Bill Paxton. Yeah, neither did I oh. until I started doing some research on this one. Is it a game about Monopoly? No, it is a game about uh, the 1913 U.S. Open uh, where a 20-year-old Francis we met played golf against his um, his idol mm-hmm. who had won the 1900 U.S. Open, which was an Englishman by the name of Harry Varden. Oh, okay. Uh, Harry Varden was a gentleman who all his life had struggled with the fact that he had come from lower end of society and had been playing this game of golf, which was considered a gentleman's sport. Yeah. And he was incredibly good at what he did, but he could never seem to climb above his his station, so to speak, by playing this sport, even though all the people... I was stuck in the last movie there for a second. I'm like, well, he's stuck in a boulder. <laughs> right? Well, not quite. Uh, but his... Uh, but the nobleman and everything in England just see him basically as this fascinating pet that they can keep around that is able to do things. Well, when he comes over and he is... You know, going on tour and things like that. Francis we met sees him and becomes an average and goes, oh my gosh, this is an incredible person. Uh, great at this sport and I absolutely love this sport and I really want to go, you know, see this guy play golf and things like that. He grew up right across the street from a golf course, Francis did. And he and his brother actually built a three-hole course in their backyard. That had like a little swamp and a, a river and some rough grass and uh, things like that. And uh, he later went on to beat Harry Varden and Ted Ray was the other Englishman, his partner, uh, Harry's partner, in the 1913 U.S. Open at the age of 20. Now, in the movie, it only shows that he wins by like a stroke. In all actuality, uh, he shoots a 72 on the course, which means that he beat Harry Varden by five mm. strokes and Ted Ray by six. Mm. But, you know, they got to play it up for the movies. Right. But even so, that's even more incredible than even by one stroke. Because that's insane for an amateur to be beating a professional golfer mm. at this. Especially one who has won so many different titles and things like that at this point. Uh, and his there's this young man featured in the movie who uh, pals around with him. Um, and he 
is supposed to be like the best friend or little brother of like one of his really good friends and it his name is escaping me all of a sudden uh give me one second here eddie lowry yeah eddie lowry um and eddie lowry ended up like hooking school in order to come caddy for him and things like that and uh ever since then they were like lifelong friends uh in fact eddie lowry even paul baird for him in 1967 i think it was when francis died um but francis was also one of the first people or first u.s uh amateur to be given the title of it was the keeper of something keys master of the house <laughs> no Uh, elected captain of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews. He was the first non-Briton. Royal and Ancient. Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews. Alright. St. Andrews, if I'm not mistaken, is like the oldest golf course in the world. It's one of the most prestigious. Yeah. And he was the first non-Brit to ever have gotten that. He's also known as the father of uh, amateur golf in the U.S., and one of the most beloved sports figures in the U.S. as well. He's done a lot for the sport. So. All right. Very good movie overall. I highly enjoy it. I always confuse this one with The Legend of Bagger Vance. Yeah, The Legend of really Bagger sure Vance is the one with uh, Will, Will Smith, Smith and Brad Pitt, I think. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Something but like for that. some reason, like they came out re- really close to each other, and I just confused the two. Yeah, I think. What year did Bagger Vance come out? No idea. Somewhere in that general area, though. Right. But whenever I think uh, greatest game ever played, I'm immediately like, oh, yeah, that's the one with Will Smith. And then, oh, no, that's Shia LaBeouf. Again. Hmm. All right. Uh, that came, Bagger Vance came out in 2000. Okay. So a couple years apart. A couple years. Uh, about five years apart. Hmm. All right. All right. Devin. My next, next one movie. is a pair of 2018 movies. The reason why there's a pair... The one that I really want to talk about is inspired by the story that is a that the other movie is a direct translation of. The movie I want to talk about is The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which is inspired by the story of, let me pull up the name, Gerard Conley, who wrote Boy Erased. Mm. So the movie Boy Erased, which is based on the book, is a direct translation of the of his story. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Gerard Conley um, and Boy Erased is the memoir of growing up as a gay son of a conservative Baptist preacher who's, who forces his son into a conversion camp. Oof. Now, Miseducation of Cameron Post is about a gay girl who is forced by her conservative parents into a, into a con- conversion camp. Uh-huh. Exact same story different genders. I liked Boy Erased. Uh, I, it's one of those that I watched because it had some nominations. Lucas Hedges is phenomenal in it, but ultimately it's forgettable. And Miseducation of Cameron Post, Chloe Grace Moretz playing Cameron Post, is unbelievable. Uh, hmm. The It's set in 1993, teenage girl forced into the gay conversion therapy center by her conservative guardians, not even parents. Uh, 2018 is actually not rated 
directed by Desiree, I'm sorry, Desiree, uh, Akhavam, Akhavam. Okay. There's an H in a place that I may or may not be silent. <laughs> but it's just one of those movies where Chloe Grace Moretz, uh, Sasha Lane, and like John uh, John Gallagher Jr. If you've seen what is uh, 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 Newsroom, there's just a whole okay. bunch of recognizable people in this cast. But it chronicles her curiously kissing a girl and getting caught by a, a fellow student who then tells the parents, parents or the guardians who then throw her into this conversion camp. And it's all this conversion camp trying to like basically pray the gay away. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those that just angers the living hell out of me. Oh, yes. Um, especially since some of my closest friends are gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this kind of story... This and, like, Jesus Camp and mm-hmm. Boy Race just anger me. And, like, it's just one of those that I just don't get how someone could be so locked in their own ways. And Cameron Post is just such a good film. Like, all of the, all of the younger cast just bring it to the, the interactions between, like, Cameron Post and the conservative, basically, camp counselors and teachers... Uh, it's just really interesting because some of them are really sympathetic to her and or empathetic to her and like I understand what's going on and I'm sorry but I can't help and that kind of stuff. It's just this really well done, really really well written uh, indie film, and I highly suggest the uh, Miseducation of Cameron Post as well as the little bit more true to actual storyline uh, Boy Erased. Okay. That's, that's you fun. talking about Chloe Grace Moretz reminded me she's in another movie I'm not talking about it she's in another movie where it's based on a true story called Brain on Fire mm-hmm. where she was also very very good in that movie it was on Netflix and I decided to watch it and it's this true story of this lady with this weird disease it's got so many different symptoms the doctors have no idea what's happening to her she essentially goes into like a coma she got tonic, she's got tantrums, like she's got like so much stuff going on with her, and she's diagnosed with this like less than ten thousand people have it, this um illness. And it was a really interesting watch. So Chloe Grace Moretz does a really good job. Yeah, she is one of those actresses that I'm I'm really curious where she goes because she's done a lot of really good films. Mm-hmm. Um she's done some misses, one of which personally I think uh Jenny's going to be watching this week. But, um, like, she's done some really, really good ones, and then some just, why are you wasting your time with this movie? Yeah. So, yeah. but just every time she's in a movie, she brings it, and she is phenomenal as Cameron Post. So, so yeah. I'm going to the movie I'm actually going to talk about, right. which is a 2011 rendition of Bethany Hamilton's story, which is called Soul Surfer. It was about a 2003 shark attack. Bethany was 13 years old and she was out with her father and her best friend about to go surfing. They were waiting for, you know, the good waves and all of a sudden a shark comes up and bites off her arm. And quite a bit of her surfboard. Two out of three. Using an arm. (laughs) Yeah, the boy's making fun of me because 127 hours and Soul Surfer both don't have arms. But... Anna Sophia Robb portrays Bethany. She does a 
fantastic job in my opinion. But the whole story of Bethany is that she absolutely loves surfing. She loves the water. She's grown up around the water. Um, she was so devastated that she couldn't surf more than the fact that she lost an entire arm. And I believe within six to eight weeks, she was back on the water after her surgery. She was very calm after the shark attack, which is a big reason as to why she didn't bleed out because she didn't have all that adrenaline running through her. She was mostly in shock and also trying to keep calm. And her dad and best friend got her to the hospital very quickly. It was a 14 foot long tiger shark, which is in the top three sharks of tech humans, along with great whites and bull sharks. And about a month later, I want to say the neighboring family, the neighboring residents ended up catching the shark and matching the bite marks to her surfboard and realizing, yep, this is the shark that bit her and it was killed. Bethany has since uh, gotten married and she has two children and she's still surfing to this day. That's pretty cool. Cool. I like the movie. The movie was good. That was the one movie that Carrie Underwood did and that's why she's not acting anymore. <laughs> Just like a... Chloe Gross Moretz, I really like Anna Sophia Rubb mm-hmm. since uh, Veruca Salt in um, Child Chalk Factory. God, I forgot she was Veruca. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think she was in Bridge of Terabithia? She yes. was. Don't remind me of that movie. Why not? Is there something wrong with Bridge of Terabithia? <laughs> we'll, we'll cover that in the Movies That Make Us Cry section. <laughs> but yeah, I, I really like Anna Sophia Rubb. And mm-hmm. I've seen Soul Surfer. I don't really remember it. I thought it was good. Um... I've only seen it once. Yeah, same here. Mm-hmm. So I caught it on, I bought it on DVD for like local 20 or something. Mm-hmm. So. My parents, when it was on cable, would watch it repeatedly and I'd just go, oh, it's this movie. Well, it was good to watch once. Bye. And I'd leave the room because I'm like, nope. Tom has a thing about losing uh, limbs. Um, yeah, I, I kind of do. I mean, it was a hard task for me to watch the one scene in uh, John Wick 3 with the eye. Oh, the slow knife through the eye? Yeah. Blech. It's I weird. James isn't even here and we still find a way to add. <laughs> I'm just if saying. we can get the thing in here. Oh, we did. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I just, that, it's just something about that I have a hard time watching. I mean, I can watch like shows on TV about surgery and stuff like that and I'll, and be just fine with it. But when it comes to actually watching fake blood and stuff, I can't do it. Wow. <laughs> I don't understand it. All right. So let's move away from the uh, loss of limb movies. Yeah. So my next movie is from 2014. It's PG-13. Runs an hour and 54 minutes. Director was Morton Tildum. Uh, writer was uh, Graham Moore. Starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Kira Knightley. Uh, the Imitation Game. What was that? I recognize the director's name, and I'm like, "Crap! I know, I know what's coming." Damn it! <laughs> yeah, uh, this is about Alan Turing and the Bletchley Park Codebreakers, who ended up solving the uh, Enigma Code mm-hmm. that helped went, helped win the Allies World War Two. Is this the same Turing that invented the Turing test? Yep. Yes. Ah. Yes. Uh, Alan Turing um, was. A interesting fellow who 
Would you say he's very Benedict Cumberbatchy? Uh, he was very, yeah. very much. Um, the thing about Alan was he had this peculiar thing of he wasn't he didn't get to know a whole lot of people very well because he was picked on a lot as a child. Um, and he only had one very close friend, and that young friend ended up dying while they were in school of some form of tuberculosis. I think it was like bovine tuberculosis or something like that. Some kind of TB. Yeah, it was something weird. Um, anyways, so it really affected him all of his life, and he went to, I think, an all-male boarding school. He was uh, gay, and... No way, he goes to a male boarding school and he's gay? I feel like this is such a trope. I feel right. like I just talked about that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it was the thing was, is back when... Uh, he was alive. Uh, Alan Turing, um, the government saw that uh, you were, it was a crime to be gay. Mm -hmm. And so people would actually be like chemically castrated and mm -hmm. things like that. So right. um, after Bletchley Park and everything like that, it was found out that he was gay and he had to go through that. Uh, however, this movie focuses more on what he was going to do at Bletchley Park, uh, which at the time was a radio factory, according to what everybody knew it as. Mm. But in all actuality, it was the community of people trying to actually get, take code in from what was being sent back and forth between the Germans, decode it, and pass it on to who they could. Uh, there's a part where Charles Dance's character, who plays like one of the super high-end generals uh, within military intelligence for the uh, Britons, uh, mentions that he had just finished um, interviewing the best uh, uh, German translator he's ever seen who knew German better than uh, Brecht. And chances were it was probably J.R.R. Tolkien, mm. or sorry, Tolkien, who he actually turned down. Tolkien actually was uh, offered a chance to work in cryptography mm. and he worked there for several months and then he was told, Oh, your services are no longer needed. Hmm. Oh, great. Yeah. So that was a time, but this movie was really great. Uh, the, just before the movie actually came out itself, the, I think it was the New York times. One of the major news publications actually reprinted the, um, crossword that Alan Turing used to recruit and test uh, the people that he recruited for his team mm. just before the movie came out. Mm. And the people who solved it could actually send in to win a trip for two to, I think it was London. Awesome. Yeah, for the premiere. So I really enjoyed this movie. Benedict Cumberbatch, there was a part, the scene near the end, where he actually broke down crying and couldn't stop. Uh, after like the shot was done and everything like that, he like just couldn't stop because he related or like he just like understood like this character. He got to love the character so much and was just like how much this person has gone through and everything like that. How could somebody do that to somebody else? And he just he broke down. He couldn't take it. Um, but it, it's an endearing story. It's interesting to see what they had to go through in order to 
make hard choices once they did find out what the codes were mm -hmm. because of the simple fact that like they couldn't let people know we figured out these codes so they actually had to try to choose which targets were less important than others i shouldn't say important but had the fewest casualties that they could get away with right than others the more priority kind yeah, of yeah so if they could save more lives they tried to but they still had to let some go because they couldn't give away that they knew right. what the codes were otherwise they just go cool not a problem we'll just scrap this and get a new thing mm -hmm. so all right but yeah that's my movie all right Devin. my third movie is a 2014 film based on a 2007 play, which in turn is based on a tragedy that happened October 7th, 2001 in Korea. Now, this follows the um, crew and maybe some passengers of a vessel called the Taichango, um, that was smuggling 25 or Chinese-Korean illegal immigrants from China to mainland Korea. This movie is called Haimu, or the Americanized version, Sea Fog. It's about the fact that the 25 Chinese-Korean illegal immigrants suffocated to death in the storage tank of, of the fishing vessel, and then the rest of the movie is the, is the crew trying to decide how they deal with the bodies that are now in the no longer freeze or the no longer refrigerated base of the ship. Oh boy. Yeah, it's a very dark dark film following the captain's decision to start chopping the bodies and throwing them into the into the ocean hoping the the bay basically hoping that individual body parts won't float. Oh. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, science and all that. Yeah. So they do actually manage to not float. You take away the air, they don't float. But it's the crew starting to deteriorate, like mentally having to chop up dead bodies to get rid of the evidence mm -hmm. while they're surrounded by the sea fog and they are completely like. They don't know anything that's nearby. They are trying to get rid of all the evidence. And the Coast Guard buzzes by or another ship shows up. And it's just this really, really cool little bottle, bottle drama set completely on this ship. And the fact that this is based on a true story, I didn't know that until I started researching. But it just blew my mind because I never thought something this dark and twisted would be a true story. Wow. But... This is one of those movies that I saw, again, at the film festival five years ago or so. Mm -hmm. And I was just absolutely blown away by it. Just this twisted, dark little, little like, psychological thriller. And, of course, the, the crew starts trying to take over the boat from the captain. And the, the captain and the loyal crew start fighting back. So now you have crew members that are being killed. And, like, what do you do with the crew members who they actually know the families of and, like, that kind of stuff. So it's this really interesting, interesting, like, dichotomy thriller. Like, what do you do with this dead body of the person you know compared to this illegal immigrant that nobody knows? And it's not supposed to be here in the first place. And if they board the ship, 
how do we explain why we killed the navigator? Like, but then how do we explain why we have six partially mutilated bodies on our ship? And it's just this really, really dark, dark, dark film, but it's just so well done and extremely tense. Uh, very, very well paced, very well edited, well shot, really good sound design from what I remember. So yeah, it's, it's very well done. It's just, it's not for the pain of heart. I was going to say, it sounds pretty, um, pretty hardcore. Going into the movie, I didn't know the story. I knew, oh, they're smuggling, smuggling ships, but I thought, oh, the, the main crux of the story is going to be like, how can we get, how can we like you know, get these people across the border into into Korea and all this. And all of the trailers didn't mention the bodies, hmm. which happens about 10 minutes into the movie. Uh. And it's a two-hour movie, and it's like, oh, man. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a brilliant movie. But it is really dark. <laughs> so. All right. Yeah, so that's called Sea Fog, or Haemu, H-A-E-M-O-O. Has nothing to do with saying, "Hey, how you doing, cow?" <laughs> from our, from a few weeks ago with our uh, title guessing. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's my third one, and on to round four, Jenny. So my fourth one is a 2015 movie about an event that happened in August of 1971. It is called the Stanford Prison Experiment, uh-huh. based on the actual experiment that happened. Starring Ezra Miller, Biddy Crudup? Crudup. And it is a story about, if you don't know what the Stanford Prison Experiment it was, it was this voluntary experiment that Philip, Dr. Philip Zimbardo was the head of. He recruited volunteers to be either prisoners or guards in this fake prison at Stanford. They cleared off this own little section, this own little corridor just for this experiment. This was over the summer. There was no other students there. And they reenacted what happens in a prison environment. And it was to see how people would react to being given these specific roles. And it took this crazy turn. And the experiment was abandoned after only six days. Hmm. It was supposed to be two weeks. Yep. However, the people, both the prisoners and the guards, found it too taxing on their mental health, and they stopped the experiment. The guards got, pretty much got way too into it, and started abusing their privileges, and the prisoners would try to rise up, only to be met with resistance from the guards. It's a really, really interesting character study about what actually happened during this experiment, I encourage everyone to actually look up the stories and the reports from this because it's crazy what happened to these people. That's Stanford Prison Experiment, or Experiment, not Russian Sleep Experiment. Yes. There are two different movies. Mm -hmm. One is a whole lot more disturbing. Yeah. (laughs) This one's pretty bad, but... Yeah, no killing off eyeballs anyway no no this is all everything was fake everything was voluntary people said i want to do this i think i'd be great for this i believe they were compensated uh the guards were compensated and then the prisoners were compensated if they survived 
or like at the end of the trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was actually some legal stuff because they didn't make it to the end of the trial. Right. So the company tried to con the prisoners out of their money mm-hmm. because they weren't contract. They were contracted for two weeks. Two weeks, and they only lasted six days, something like that. Right. Yeah. A big legal legal battle. A lot of the people in the experiment suffered from. PTSD like symptoms. Yep. Most yeah. Including Most of some of the guards. Yep. Guards and prisoners alike. And it was uh it was crazy. A lot of the prisoners actually were beaten by the, the guards too. hmm So I mean they went full ham on these people. And I believe I know in the movie, I don't know if it's true in the actual experiment, in the movie, one of the prisoners does end up leaving the experiment early and getting out, saying, I don't want a part of this anymore. I, I'm out. I don't want to do this. And the prisoners and the rest of the experiment said, you know, what happened to this guy? And they just made stuff up. Didn't say, like, oh, he left the experiment. They just said he's gone. Pretty much didn't give an explanation. Freaked everybody out. Oh, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen the movie. It... I genuinely really liked it. It's one of those that the actual like specifics of the movie have kind of been lost. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't remember what happens near the end. I remember parts of it, and mm-hmm. I remember all of them making a barricade mm-hmm. to not let the guards in, and like just them trying to pull the plug, and like the guards not wanting to do it. And yeah, and yeah. the the professors and researchers behind it just kind of let it happen. They really didn't want to intervene as they wanted to intervene as little as possible. So it led to the guards pretty much taking over everything. And there was a couple of prisoners that tried to start riots and not go along with the experiment, tried to, you know, use their actual names instead of just saying prisoner and their number, and ended up being bad for everyone else. So when one person gets punished, everyone gets punished. Yep. Didn't the person, the doctor that set this up, I don't know if he tried to kill himself or something, but there's, he ends up, it doesn't end well for him, if I remember correctly. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, yeah there was, so I had, I thought I had seen this movie. I had seen the movie The Experiment. Mm. Based um, on the same thing. Based on the same thing. And... If I'm not mistaken, you're right. The actual doctor who set it up, like, things did not turn out well for him. Like, even if it wasn't, I don't remember if it was, like, self-inflicted or if it was just, like, afterwards he couldn't deal with what he had done. Yeah. And the outcome of that experiment was just, like, too scarring for him. I couldn't rem- I don't remember. Um, Philip Zimbardo was part of the experiment, playing the role of prison superintendent or warden, essentially. But other than that, he didn't do a whole lot as far as interfering. Yeah, I just don't remember if, like, afterwards, like, he had a hard time dealing with what he had done and had a hard time just in general. Like, he may have had to go through, like, some therapy and stuff like that. I think they all had to go through some therapy. Right, like, it was a... It showed the darker, some of the darkest sides of humanity in such a short amount of time. So, and I believe the findings of this study were never actually published because it wasn't actually finished. Like the actual results of the study, I think they mentioned at the end of the movie. Gotcha. 
And yeah, so that's my fourth movie. All right. Tom. All right, so my next movie is uh, from 2013. It's rated R, runs three hours long, directed by Martin Scorsese. Writer was Terrence Winter, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Jonah Hill, Margot Robbie, Matthew McConaughey, and John Favreau, as well as a slew of other actors. Uh, it is The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, it's a story of uh, Jordan Belfort, who was a stockbroker and was involved with uh, corruption and federal uh, and some crimes that got him indicted by the federal government. Uh, the crimes that he was uh, convicted of were securities fraud and money laundering. He served four years. Uh, his crime penalty was four years in federal prison and $110 million in restitution. All right. Uh, he had started to, he became a stockbroker, and then, um, if I'm not mistaken, he had went through, it was Black Tuesday, I think it was, um, where in the 1980s, uh, one of the hardest times for Wall Street hit, and it basically shut down a lot of like major financial financial institutions on Wall Street. And then uh, he ended up going um, about finding about penny stocks and ended up creating a penny stock scam with all of his friends and kiting money back and forth between the US and Switzerland and all sorts of other places and getting into a lot of trouble. Um, yeah, it things did not turn out very well for him. He also became a motivational speaker and an author. So the movie is just over the top, just sex and drugs everywhere. Yep. Margot Robbie. Yep, the which movie that introduced us to Margot Robbie? Yes, uh, which originally Scorsese wanted to give her a robe for the seduction scene, and she said no because her character Naomi, uh, her like only kind of currency in this world is her body, so she's going to do this nude. All right, great. And when that movie came out, she told her family and friends that. Uh, no, 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 it was a body double and all this stuff was like CGI work and things like that. It wasn't actually me. And then she was like, okay, no, it was me. It also took her three shots of tequila before she actually would do the scene. Cool. Yeah, like she had to do three shots to calm her nerves enough. And in the scene where he, her and Leo are having sex for the first time and the dog's like sitting there and jumping up on the bed, bed supposedly biting him and everything like that, they do put like chicken livers and Ew. stuff like that all over his legs and in between his toes Ew. to and dog food to get the dog to be enticed to jump up there and mess with his feet and everything like that. That's gross. Yeah. And in the scene where he's uh, kissing um, uh, Miss Lumley, uh, it took him 27 takes to do that because he was so nervous. Hmm. Yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> yeah, the movie is awesome. Uh, it's a really long movie, so yeah, it's like three hours. It is three hours. That's so some really, really good CGI too. 
Yeah. That you don't even notice. Yes, there is some very good CGI in there that you don't notice at all. It actually hospitalized Jonah Hill in the making of this film. Uh, because all the scenes where they're doing cocaine, uh, they were actually snorting crushed up vitamin B. And oh my God. he, Jonah Hill supposedly had done so much, uh, or he had developed uh, bronchitis or something so badly from the so much inhaling and everything that it hospitalized him. Hmm. Yeah, uh, the movie was mainly um, uh, ad-libbed or improvised because most of Martin Scorsese's things are because he highly encourages that. Hmm. Uh, so the scene where Mark or uh, where uh, Jordan Belfort is high on lemons. And he goes down the steps at the country club to get into his car, uh, where he calls his palsy phase. Uh, he uses his foot to open the door. He strained his back so badly he could only do the scene once. Oof. Yeah. 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 That's easily the best scene of the movie. Yeah. Easily. Unless you're only watching it from Margot Robbie. But, you know, Isn't, I mean, yeah. Is this also the movie where... I believe it's Leonardo DiCaprio has the glass in his hand and he ends up like shattering it and getting glass stuck in his hand. That's Django Unchained. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, that's when he's playing. It's about candy. the same time, though. Oh, yeah, it's about a year or so, um, a few years. But uh, no, this one he's he's getting very very high with a lot of his friends, doing a lot of different things with a lot of people that he probably shouldn't have been doing them with. Yep. Um. The the film itself, though, like, it shows the excess that somebody who is unrestrained with their money, who is just making money hand over fist, mm -hmm. and has no, like, restraints, especially if they're high all the time. Because uh, he said that he was, if it's anywhere near as true as the actual story, and I'm not sure how much it is because I haven't actually read Jordan Belfort's biography, but if it's anywhere near as true, he did enough drugs a day to sedate Manhattan, huh. as he put it. Wow. So, yeah, he was taking, like, six different drugs a day just to, like, level himself out so he could, like, function. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, cocaine to up himself and uh, barbiturates to lower himself and yeah. all these other... I'm like, yeah. holy smokes, bro. Yeah. You need to stop. But, yeah, so... It, I, I found it to be a highly entertaining movie. The first time I saw it in theaters, I'm sitting there going, well, that's a scene to open with uh, <laughs> where he's doing blow out of a hooker's butt. Nice. Um, like, yeah. whoo, that, whoo, okay. Uh, but I didn't know really what to expect going into it other than it was, like, going to be a lot of drugs and, like, lots of, like, money being thrown, thrown around, lots of stuff going Wall Street. So I was going in going... Okay, so it's going to be a lot like Wall Street. No. <laughs> no, no. It made Wall Street look like a kindergarten film. Yep. I'm like, wow. Okay. So if you're into something that is sex, drugs, and Rock Wall and roll. Street, Wall Street <laughs> yeah. go see this movie because you'll get your money's worth. All right. So my fourth one. Yours is about a billionaire that... Does a lot of drugs, does a, goes to a lot of parties, and is really, really, like, just loves money and throws it everywhere. Mine is about a billionaire who doesn't like parties, <laughs> doesn't go outside, and for the most part, uh, sits, a sits at a computer. I was going to say the aviator? 
No, even better. <laughs> okay. uh, I'm talking about the 2010 Social Network. Oh, okay. Based on the the founding and creation of Facebook, uh, and ultimately the story of how the Winklevi twins, uh, Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss and Divian Narendra, are suing um, Mark Zuckerberg, and the CFO of Facebook, Eduardo Severin, is suing Mark Zuckerberg. The screenplay, written by Aaron Sorkin, who is a genius writer. Yeah, he is. The Newsroom, Studio 60, uh, Sports Night, West Wing, A Few Good Men, Molly's Game, a whole bunch of other ones. Um, but it shows from Mark Zuckerberg getting the idea to make the Facebook through him meeting Sean Parker, played by Justin Timberlake. Um, and then ultimately getting the first backers and building the, the company up to their one millionth uh, subscriber, their one millionth um, customer. User. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's the kind of transition from him being just a genius Harvard computer programmer to ultimately the youngest billionaire of, of all time. time. Yeah. Yeah. Technically, in reality, the his roommate, who was one of the other programmers, is a few months younger than him. But yeah, close enough. Um, but yeah, it it is one of those weird movies that is highly factual in certain places, like the uh, the depositions between Eduardo Saverin and Mark Zuckerberg, or the Winklevoss twin, Mark Zuckerberg. That is all based on fact, but the character personalities of Eduardo Saverin and Jesse or uh, Jesse Eisenberg's Mark Zuckerberg and Sean Parker and like a bunch of other things, completely fictional, mm -hmm. but it makes for a good movie. So don't care. Uh, this movie is just, I can't say enough about the writing, the dialogue between Zuckerberg and everybody, the fast Aaron Sorkin, rapid fire, quick, quick paced dialogue is just brilliant mm -hmm. the script is almost 200 pages long the movie's 120 minutes so that's they have wow a whole bunch of extra dialogue in that script but it is just an absolutely brilliant film uh directed by david fincher who did like i'm gonna pull up his list of movies because you know him seven gone girl zodiac he directed Mindhunter that I'm currently watching. Uh, he directed a bunch of House of Cards, Girl the Dragon Tattoos remake, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. You get the idea. He's done Panic Room. He just did a whole bunch of these really good thrillers. And then he did this movie about a billionaire that there's no action, there's no tension. It's this, this telling the story about this really intelligent character surrounded by really intelligent people doing really intelligent things but without that, like, likability. Really, none of the characters in this movie are likable. And that, I think, is the biggest issue a lot of people have with it. Is that Mark Zuckerberg's not likable in this movie. It doesn't exactly help that he's kind of robotic in real life, but <laughs> this movie, he's not likable. Eduardo right. Saverin, likable at times, but ultimately, no, not really. Sean Parker, sure, it's Justin Timberlake, but not likable. Uh, even Erica Albright, the whole reason why he made Face Mash and then, you know, compared women to women and then that 
then started rolling with fa- the Facebook and right. so on. You know, that's she's kind of mean too. So it's like everyone in the movie, nobody's a likable character. The Winklevi twins are just douchebags, and like everyone in this movie is not likable. But it is they're such good characters; it doesn't really matter. So for sure, for sure, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I like the movie overall, mm-hmm. but it's not one that I usually go out of my way to watch. I turn it on when I'm writing. Like, I find that the the dialogue, the the kind of pacing, the score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross is brilliant, and I love the way they do the Winklevoss twins with Army Hammer, yeah, and the body double, and then they replace the body double's face with Army Hammer's face, or they creatively shoot shoot it separately and. Just a, there's like a couple of times where it doesn't work, but just seamless for the rest of it. And the, of course, the scene with them losing the row rowing competition is just yeah. Somehow they made rowing uh, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's one of those movies that I just absolutely love, and it's just kind of one that has a feeling to it. I'm not really sure how to explain that. That's fair. So. But yeah, I really like it. Alright. Have you seen it? I have seen it. What's your thing? I also enjoyed it, but I really enjoyed Jesse Eisenberg's portrayal of Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. That was my favorite part of the whole movie. I like the sardonic, like, kind of condescending... I mean, that's kind of Jesse Eisenberg's character in a lot of movies. Like, it's also him in Now You See Me, as well. Just that fast pace, just like quick wit. This just feels like a better written (laughs) version of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Taken to the next level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so with that, I have four honorable mentions. I have four as well. Same. Yeah. So I'm just going to quick like go through them. Uh, 1993 movie, Schindler's List, based on the World War II doctor that got hundreds of kids out during that time period. Very long movie. I think three plus hours. Um, it's up there. But it was something that we actually had to watch in school. And it scarred me. Made us all cry. Very good movie, though. If you want to have, like, a real good, like, gallon of ice cream with you, want to have a good cry, watch that movie. Three hours, 15 minutes. Three hours and 15 minutes. That's like Lord of the Rings. Long movie. Pretty sure it took us an entire week to watch the entire thing. Next movie. My Left Foot. Again with the limbs. <laughs> this one isn't about a lost limb, though. This is about the only thing that works on this person's body. Even worse. They lost three <laughs> other limbs. No, they did No. No. Do you, have either of you seen this movie? No. I've seen it. Okay. With Daniel Day-Lewis? I believe so. He's the main character, I believe. So the movie My Left Foot is um, based on a book called My Left Foot. is the autobiography of Christy Brown, who was born with cerebral palsy in 1932 in Dublin, Ireland. As one of 13 surviving children, Christy Brown went on to become an author, painter, and poet only using his left foot. It's a very... It's been years since I've seen this movie. I'm pretty sure I've seen it on, like, the independent film channel. But it was a slow movie, meticulous, but it goes through the entire childhood and how Christy was 
physically handicapped, and during that time period, people also thought he was mentally handicapped and found out that he could actually do things for himself if he tried. So, that's another movie. Third honorable mention is A Beautiful Mind, the story of John Forms Nash Jr., an American mathematician who changed uh, math and equations and all that, all that stuff that I don't know anything about. Very, very complex person, and he's also known for having paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah. We also had to watch this movie in school. I'm pretty sure this was when I was in college. Russell Crowe, Paul Bettany plays. Mm -hmm. Paul Bettany and what, Ed Harris, I think, are his... Thanks. Might just yeah. be Ed Harris is his... Uh, so, uh, yeah. this movie is about his life and his struggle with... Paranoid schizophrenia at the same time having such a brilliant mind for mathematics and science. And he was the only person to be awarded both the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences and the Abel Prize. So, very smart person. In 2015, he did pass away in a car crash with his wife. Mm-hmm. So, there's a loss to the community there. And then my fourth and final honorable mention is the movie Selena, 1997, film about the Mexican-American singer who was tragically murdered by one of her managers over uh, embezzlement. And I watched this movie when I was really young. I probably shouldn't have been watching it. But, I don't know, I found it one day and I just was captivated by the music and the entire movie and j-lo did a pretty good job regardless of what some people say i thought she did a pretty good job i thought she looked very similar to selena and it told a story about how she got into music her father was into music and he was persecuted for being mexican-american in in both mexico and america being that kind of in between just latino but Selena really changed the game for it, and she did a crossover album, which was, I believe, her last album she did before she died, that a lot of people still listen to today, and I do enjoy quite a few of the songs on there. Her outfits, she was known for. She had her own fashion line. She had beautiful, wonderful music, and she was so into it. She loved it. She was only 23, I believe, when she died. She was murdered by one of her managers, Yolanda Salvarez, over... Yolanda had been embezzling funds from Selena's fan club, I believe it was, and Selena was calling her out on it. They only agreed to meet, like, alone, and she wanted to, you know, give her a second chance and, you know, try and save the relationship, and Yolanda ended up shooting her and killing her, and it was a tragic loss. Hmm. She could have gone on to do so many other things, but, yeah. That is also one of the movies that makes me cry almost every time. Gotcha. All right. So those are my honorable mentions. All right. So my honorable mentions um, would be a 2001 film, rated R, runs two hours and 11 minutes, uh, starring Jude Law and Ed Harris, Ray Fiennes, and Rachel Weisz and Bob Hoskins, um, about a Russian and German sniper who play a game of cat and mouse during the Battle of Stalingrad uh, called Enemy at the Gates. Um Jude Law plays the character of Vizali Saitsev, who won numerous awards for 
his valorous service as a sniper during World War II. Um, it's a really good film. It shows some of the gritty things that the snipers had to do and go through in order to um, get the kills that they did during World War II. Um, and it also showed the links that they would go to in some cases in order to get people to come out of hiding, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, next up, a really, really long movie from 1993. Uh, it's PG starring Tom Berenger, Martin Sheen, and Stephen Lang. Uh, it's Gettysburg ran four hours and 31 minutes. Damn, that's a long movie. Is it a two-parter? Nope. Wow. Yep. All one part, and it's literally about the Battle of Gettysburg. Damn. A lot of here picks are history-based, I see. Like, very, like, historical-type Yeah. Um, so when I was younger in middle school and high school, uh, I had the pleasure of reading um, Killer Angels and Gods and Generals by Jeff and Michael Shara, uh, father and son who do um, historical uh, stories about different, have done different, about different battles and uh, wars and things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Killer Angels is actually about Battle of Gettysburg and a few of the battles leading up to it. And then uh, Gods and Generals is um, dealing with the Battle of Antietam and for the life of me, I can't remember the other battles that were involved with that one. But that one is also an incredibly good movie. It came out a few years later. Uh, that one's with uh, Jeff Daniels and a slew of other people. Jeff Daniels plays... Um, Oh, gosh, why am I blanking? Uh, Thomas, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, that's what it was. Uh, it also has Robert Duvall, Stephen Lang, and a bunch of other people that were in it. Excellent film. Um, and it's primarily about the rise and fall of legendary uh, war hero Stonewall Jackson, but... That one was very good. Uh, second, the next movie that I have is Finding Neverland. Came out in two thousand four. Runs an hour and forty six minutes, starring Johnny Depp, Kate Winslet, Dustin Hoffman, and Freddie Highmore. Freddie Highmore was a, kind of an underrated actor. Yeah, definitely. Um, and this is about the uh, author. Why am I blanking on his first name? Barry. Yeah, for, last name is Barry. J.M. Barry. Yeah. Um, who was responsible for, uh, yeah, J.M. Barry, who was responsible for writing Peter Pan. And the inspiration for those, or for that story. Um, and it is a very sad film. Yeah. Well, I, I've seen this one specific meme about Peter Pan. Something along the lines of, all of those children are dead. And Peter Pan is escorting them to quote unquote Neverland, and they never grow up because they are dead in uh, heaven. I believe. Well, not quite where this movie goes. But okay, okay, great. <laughs> no, no. Um, it's more about 
uh, Johnny Depp's character is J.M. Barry, and he befriends um, a woman with several children who is a widow, and while he's married, uh, he becomes, like, obsessed with spending time with the children, especially, um, because he is, he's a, he wants to see the imagination of children and see how it can unlock some incredible things, um, and see where it can go. And because he, as an adult, kind of never really grew up, so to speak, um, and has always had that fascination and that imagination. And he's like, the magic of children's imaginations is what's going to, like, do amazing things. And it kind of leads to almost like a scandalous uh, ideas of what's actually going on with the mother of these children and things like that. Um, and she ends up getting, we find out, she has end up be getting sick with tuberculosis. Everyone dies of tuberculosis. <laughs> I know, every full mind all, I have, everyone dies of tuberculosis. All the movies I had to watch in my Japanese classes, all the people died of tuberculosis. Um, and then my final movie is uh, 12 Years a Slave. Uh, came out in 2013, rated R, 2 hours and 14 minutes, starring Chuatal Ejiofor. Michael Fassbender, Brad Pitt, um, and it's about um, a free black man by the name of Solomon Northrup, who lives in upstate New York, who gets abducted and sold into slavery, and it takes him 12 years to uh, find a way to get out of uh, this um, forced uh, enslavement and he does so by befriending and talking with a carpenter from Canada played by Brad Pitt uh, who he gives information about his past and where he's from and his name and everything like that and says hey um, I need help this isn't where I belong I'm actually a free man from New York mm -hmm. and I've been sold into slavery illegally and through his help, they end up contacting people who can help free him, and he gets free. It's a fantastic film. Um, overall, it's heart-wrenching, and it shows one of the darkest periods in American history. All right. Well, my four that I have, I took out Bader Meinhof Complex because it's amazing, but I don't remember it. <laughs> Uh, so my first one is a 2017 romantic dramedy, uh, starring Camille Nanjiani and Zoe Kazan called The Big Sick. Uh, Camille Nanjiani plays the Pakistan-born comedian Camille Nanjiani. Weird. Hmm. And grad student Emily Garner, Zoe Kazan, fall in love but struggle as their cultures clash. When Emily contracts a mysterious illness, Camille finds himself forced to face her feisty parents, his family's expectation, and his true feelings. Uh, ultimately, it's about, it is the story of Kamel Nanjiani's real wife and what they went through when they first met. Uh, she developed a certain, certain disorder, which I wish was just on this page, nice and easy, but 
an illness that uh, Emily, his wife, or ended up uh, getting over. So, but yeah, it's a really, really uh, good but kind of depressing um, dramedy uh, directed by Michael Showalter, who also directed Wet Hot American Summer. The next one I want to mention is a 2018 comedy called Tag, starring a bunch of people, but Jeremy Renner and Helms, Jake Johnson, John Hamm, and Lil Ray Howery. I remember. I wanted to see that movie. I never got around to well, seeing it. That's a pretty good movie. Yeah. It's based on a group of friends that uh, get together, I believe, once a year or once every few years and continue a ongoing game of Tag. It's actually based on a group of friends. They get together, and uh, it's the writers. They get together, and they <laughs> they continue this game of tag. But it's set around uh, Jeremy Renner, who has never been tagged. Mm-hmm. Um, it's set around his wedding, and the guys going there to try to continue the game. And it's a just a fun little comedy. But I just love the fact that it's based on a true story. How much of it is a true story, though? Do you know? Uh, the overall concept and some of the the things that happen in the movie are based on reality, but a lot of it is fiction. So, okay. Yeah. But the overall idea of this group of friends that are still playing tag to this day. Oh, that sounds awesome. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one I wanted to mention is called Compliance. I have mentioned this one before uh, on the guess what the hell that movie means. This is the one about the... Uh, I believe it was a McDonald's that's falsified in the in the movie, but a normal Friday service at a fast food restaurant becomes interrupted by a police officer who claims an employee stole from a customer, but the call quickly goes weird while he starts to manipulate the the female manager um, into strip searching the the young female employee, and then manipulates the manager's husband into molesting the, the girl to make sure that she doesn't do it again. The thing is, it is all real. I'm sorry for the language, but what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought the same thing, but... Not as messed up. When I saw this at the film festival, and they actually had tapes of the, the transcripts, and it's, like, word for word with the movie, and the the husband, like, assaults the girl to, like spank her into not doing it again kind of stuff and then the guy's like no 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 that you have to go farther and the guy's just okay and it's that they think that this is a cop calling and yeah it's just one of those movies that it's it's super hard to watch uh directed by the same dude that directed the hunt Mm. the movie that hypothetically is never getting released that may get released but it's one of those movies that the fact that that's based on a real story is just mind-boggling mm-hmm. how someone could be that gullible mm-hmm. but it happened and then the final one i want to mention is a 2012 movie called Contiki. let me pull up the the story here this is actually a really cool story it's a nor a norwegian explorer named tor heyerdahl crossing the pacific ocean from uh where is it from South America to the Polynesians on a balsa wood raft in 1947, just to prove that it can be done. 
Wow, not like this guy has a big E or anything. Wow, that's crazy. Together with five men, they proved that South Americans back in pre-Columbian times could have crossed the ocean and settled on the Polynesian islands. After financing trips with loans and donations, they set off on a 101-day-long 8,000-kilometer or 4,300-mile 4, crossing of the Pacific Ocean on a balsa wood raft. And how does that go? They make it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I believe. I believe they make it, but it's one of those that it's it's not super arduous. Like, they don't get halfway through and get attacked by a shark, even though for the American release of this film... They digitally added extra sharks. Of course they did. Of course. Because, and I quote the director, Americans like sharks. <laughs> Shark Week, I mean, come on. No, quite literally, they just yeah. CG added in sharks for no reason. They added it on the poster, which just has a giant shark, when it's really about them getting across and not like getting yeah. hunted by sharks. So, But it's just really, really good and interesting like adventure movie going from one side of the ocean to the other. All right. And it's just, it shouldn't work, but it does. So, All right, what a yeah. time. So yeah, that's my final one, Contiki. Wow. They ended up, the same directors ended up directing the, I believe, fifth uh, Pirates movie. Oh, okay. So, yeah, the one with uh, Javier Bardem as the film. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, because the name of that film sounded familiar. Yeah, there was some talk about doing an American remake, but that kind of fell through. Okay. Good. Yeah. All right, so that wraps up our main topic for uh, this week. Yep. Shall we move into Janet? My favorite part of the podcast where I get to talk and nobody else does. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. All right, So love. I am doing a two-parter, so this is part one. I was tasked to watch the movies Let the Right One In and Let Me In, the Swedish versus the American. And so this week I watched Let the Right One In, and it was very slow. Yeah. Very slow. The movie is only two hours, not even, but it felt like it was a four-hour movie. Yep. And it was just dragging on, and little things would happen here and there, but I realized the movie seems so slow because of a lack of music. It was very subtle. It was very minimalistic. It was basically just these two characters kind of learning about each other's worlds and having things go on in their own backgrounds. So there's Oscar, who is this 12-year-old boy getting bullied at school. You know, every kid goes through it pretty much. And he's starting to get to the point of, like, getting fed up with it. He wants to murder the bullies because he just can't take it anymore. Yada, yada, yada. He meets this girl that moves in named, I believe the Americanization is Ellie. Ellie. Yeah. Ellie. And she's really weird. He only talks to her at night out behind their apartment complex. And he befriends her, ends up liking her. And she tries her best to be his friend without getting too close and then it's revealed that, hey, she's a vampire. And Oscar doesn't really care. Because <laughs> he's 12 and doesn't think that there's consequences of these things. But 
the movie kind of goes between Oscar's life and his bullies and his family and Ellie's life trying to survive and she has her caretaker dude, her father, quote unquote, that is trying to kill people for her and get her blood so she can sustain herself. And he ends up uh, getting caught and she kills him so he doesn't have to go through all the jail and whatever. And then she's kind of just by herself, doesn't really know what to do. And they end up becoming better friends. And uh, it was okay. It's not my type of movie for sure. Like I said, it was very slow. I'm looking forward to the American remake of it with Chloe Grace Moretz again. We talked about the entire podcast. And seeing what Americans decide to do with this weird little tale. Alright. Yeah. That's that's all I got. I'm a little curious if you caught Ellie after the father, his name's Hakan, Mm. after the father died, why did Ellie start befriending Oscar? Because she needed a new caretaker. Exactly. She, she needed a new, not host, really, but a new person Someone to... Someone to get blood for. Right, because she's 12, and it would, I mean, it's really suspicious you killing people anyway, but especially because she's a child and is, you know, can easily be overpowered by adults, easily, quote-unquote, she's, you know, vampire and all that. It did kind of get into some of the vampire tropes, like, has to be asked inside before she can do anything she does mention flying at one point so i don't know if she turned into a bat or if she just levitated she you do see her jump out of the hospital after killing the father Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and lands and that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. uh he asks a bunch of questions like does this work does this work and she says no to almost everything yeah So. so it's got a couple of things here and there you know whatever the movie ends with uh her murdering all of his bullies, which was a great time. Super gory. Disgusting. But righteous. Yeah. yeah. That's about right. Yeah. Gross. This movie was gross. Also, there is one part where I am not going to lie to you. I was zoning out a little bit. And then Ellie is changing. And Oscar gets this glimpse. <laughs> because Ellie had mentioned in the movie that I'm not a girl. And I was very confused by that. I'm like, is it actually a boy? Is it a, in between, like a nothing or like a bull? I don't know. And then there's this one very short shot of Ellie's genitalia area with nothing there and a big old scar. And it's going the wrong direction. Yep. Yeah. So that whole bit was very confusing, but Devin has read the book that the movie is based on and cleared that up for me. Yep. Are they going to clear it up in the American version? No. No. Because Ellie's name is Abby and has a completely different backstory. And is from Texas. Right. Something like that. Yeah. And they, a lot of this kind of behind the scenes subtext type stuff that's going on, completely gone in the American. Yeah. Which might be better, but we'll, we'll see what the American version has to bring. Yeah. But anyway, on to what comes out this week. Coming out this week, uh, we have Angel Has Fallen. Oh boy. 
I'll see it. It's not going to be great. Big eye roll from Devin. I've seen the other two. We'll see. I saw the first one. That's about all I need. Uh, Olympus Has Fallen was fine. London Has Fallen wasn't. <laughs> so, we'll see. Uh, Angel Has Fallen might be fun. I, I like the two leads. So, Gerard Butler and Morgan Freeman, but... I mean, they yeah. are good, very good actors. Also coming out, Ready or Not, the hide-and-seek yes. uh, horror film. It's like a horror comedy type thing. Like, what did you say? Like, Cabin in the Woods type deal? Kind of looks like Cabin in the Woods. Uh, kind of like the movie You're Next. The, not fully a horror movie, but very intense, but with humor. Yeah, Happy Death Day. Yeah, Happy Death Day. The first one, not so much the yeah. second one. The second one was sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, but the other movie coming out is Brittany Runs a Marathon, which... Woo! Brittany! I loved Brittany Runs a Marathon. I'm actually looking forward so. to seeing this. So, if you get a chance to see that, go see it. Yeah. Um, coming out next week is not a whole lot. It's kind of the end of the summer season, but Official Secrets is coming out, uh, starring Kira Knightley. Give that movie a shot. Uh, it doesn't sound all that great, but it's about the girl who leaked the, the email by the U.S. to try to get the U.N. to change their mind with false facts into going into Iraq mm. after 9-11. So, and like the WMDs and all that, and trying to just say, yeah, they're there and try to, you know, find anything and force their hand kind of thing. It's a really, really fascinating little film, but mm. yeah. So that's coming out next week. Other than that, uh, not a whole lot. All so. right. We're wrapping up the back to school season here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally excited. Cool. Well, we'll be back next week with more movies. Uh, don't more know the topic people. yet. <laughs> Maybe. We Maybe. shall see. Maybe James and Chris will come back. Maybe. Yeah, we'll see. With sure. all that being said. That's another week of the In the Can podcast. We'll see you next week. Bye. Go see more movies. Bye.